Um, we're going to be in Romans 8 this morning, an incredibly key chapter to help us understand how to live the Christian life. And there's one word I want you to particularly think about this morning as we get in Romans 8, and that is the word compelled or compel. And so we're going to start with a definition. You can write this in on your sermon notes. It's on the back of your bulletin there. To be compelled is to be driven to a particular course of action, often by an irresistible internal urge. So let me say that again. When you're compelled, you're driven. You're driven to a particular action, often by this internal irresistible urge, just by this internal irresistible urge, like, I, I got to do this. And I think that word well describes what it means to live according to the Spirit as Paul breaks down for us in this chapter from Romans 8. So here's what we basically outline the first 17 verses for you. I'm going to give you a theme statement of each paragraph in this section and then give you some supporting points from each verse um, about that theme sentence. And it's going to take us a while, three points or so, before we even get to this word compelled but Paul lays this foundation for us so we can indeed live that way. And so we'll follow um, his uh, instruction here. So the first summary point of paragraph one, in Christ, in Christ, we are completely and legally free from God's condemnation. In Christ, we are completely and legally free from God's condemnation. Let me read you the first um, few verses. Paul starts in verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul jumps right in in verse 1 and says, we are completely and legally free from the verdict of condemnation. In other words, we're pardoned. And a pardon, is when, a pardon is when someone in authority uh, says you're just free from condemnation, you're free from punishment. We, we declare you that way, we take that away. It's not an absolution of guilt. Um, and so it's, we're still guilty, we've sinned, it's just that God, according to his work in Jesus Christ, in Christ, we are not condemned. We're legally free, we don't have to face punishment even though we're guilty, we are pardoned. It's an incredible thing. Uh, and we'll talk more about this in a couple minutes here. From verse 3, the reason this is true is because Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh. Sin is what results in condemnation, is what results in punishment, in judgment. And Jesus condemned sin in the flesh by his work on the cross, the final punch of sin is death. Jesus conquered death by his resurrection from the dead. 
So he kind of punched sin right in the face. He condemned sin in the flesh. The reason is, from verse 4, so that we could live according to the Spirit. And this is the primary theme of this section of Scripture now, is Paul helping us understand what it means to live by the Spirit. And that's what we're going to talk about through the rest of of this uh, message. To live according to the Spirit. Now, the problem is we can understand this, that we're legally free and completely free from God's condemnation. But as Tony brought to us last week in Romans 7, sometimes we still feel that condemnation. Paul actually used the word, he said, what a wretched man I am. So we feel wretched because our sin, our sinful desires are not yet completely eradicated. That won't happen until Jesus comes back or until we go to heaven. They should be lessening, but so sometimes it just kind of creeps up a little bit and we feel this wretchedness. We're like, ugh, what's wrong with me? Well, here's what you do when you feel that wretchedness. Take the last verse of what Paul said in Romans 7 and the first verse here of Romans 8. And by the way, Paul didn't put the chapter distinctions in there. We did that in the verse distinctions. So this flows completely. And and look at this. If you take verse 25, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God. He delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Then go right into verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Some of you may say, I can't memorize Scripture. We'll just memorize a good share of this. And when those wretched feelings come, when you're like, I know I'm freed from condemnation. I know that I should live in the Spirit and I want to live in the Spirit, but what a wretched person I am. Just go back and preach to yourself. Preach this truth to yourself from those texts. Now, summary statement of paragraph 2, which is verses 5 through 8, set your mind on what the Holy Spirit desires. Because you've been freed, pardoned from condemnation, you're freed from, because Jesus won the victory over sin in the flesh, you can now have the opportunity to set your mind on what the Holy Spirit desires. Let's read this, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. There's this contrast that Paul makes much of in this text. He says it again this way in verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh, that's hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. But those who are in the realm of the flesh, they cannot please God. It's impossible. So there's this contrast between having a mind that's governed by the flesh or governed by the Spirit. Let me give you some subpoints here. Verse 5, Paul seems to be talking about what is your mind occupied with? And so it's a very practical question. What is most of your days, is your mind occupied more with the desires of the flesh or the desires of the Spirit? Paul's point in verse 5 is occupy your mind with what the Spirit desires instead of occupation with fleshly desires. 
And so this mind of the flesh is that sinful, depraved, old heart that wants to uh, find pleasure in fleshly desires. And that's what Jesus condemned in the flesh. So it's done. We don't have to go back to that. We can set our minds on what the Holy Spirit desires. Verse 6, being occupied with what the Spirit desires creates a center of life and peace. I love this. The mind governed by the Spirit, the end of verse 6, is life and peace. Wouldn't you love to go through the rest of your life and every decision you make, every response you give to people comes from a center of peace in your own heart? Where you're not responding out of frustration, where you're not responding out of anger or maybe envy or jealousy or frustration, but every time you respond to a situation or to people, it just flows from that center of peace. That's possible when our minds are set on the Spirit. Because one of the outcomes of a mindset on the Spirit is this center of life and peace. It's a beautiful thing and an incredible gift. Verse 7 and 8, then Paul says it a couple times here. You cannot please God and be occupied with the desires of the flesh. That's just hostility to God. You can't please Him and still please the desires of the flesh. it's, It's one or the other. So we've created a little graphic here. We're going to use this more in the message, but I just want to get, your, get it a picture in your brain here. We want to contrast, as Paul does in this entire section, the mind set on the flesh or the mind set on the Spirit. He used a little bit different language in Galatians. He talks about pleasing. Don't try to please the flesh, but please the Spirit. And so the one who has the Holy Spirit, we want to live with our minds set on the Spirit. We want to bring Him glory and honor and pleasure. We don't want to pleasure the flesh. And yet it creeps back in, doesn't it, to the point of where we feel wretchedness. All right, let's go on to our third paragraph. The summary statement for that paragraph is this. The Holy Spirit indwells and transforms from the inside out. Paul says this very succinctly in verses 9 through 11. Let's read it. Paul says in verse 9, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. This amazing stuff here. Um, verse 9 is just fantastic. Paul says, if anyone has this... Uh, is in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in them. And that's the gift that God gives us when we first trust Him and surrender our lives to the Lordship of Christ. And then Paul says it in a negative way, and this might feel a little direct, even harsh. The second half of verse 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Ouch. And uh, I just want to take a pause here and actually pray for you because I've met a lot of people over the years, church people, people who confess Christ, who would say, you know, I'm I'm just not sure I have the Spirit. I kind of want that, but I, I don't know. And there's been 
teaching about the Holy Spirit that may be ambiguous, and then we see people um, fraudulently proclaiming things about the Holy Spirit that make us nervous, and we're like, I don't want to be one of those guys. And so we're not certain. And there's no real formula for the gift of the Holy Spirit if we trust in Christ. All Jesus said we have to do is ask. He said it this way in Luke eleven thirteen: If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're freed from that condemnation, all you have to do is just ask. And God will give you this amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to pray this morning. I don't want to assume that everybody in this room has received the Spirit of Christ. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, stand up, or do any somersaults or anything. I'm just going to pray and intercede for you that in your heart, if you're saying, I don't know, but I want that. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've condemned sin in the flesh. Thank you that you defeated it. That you've pardoned us by your completed work on the cross. And that you desire to give to us the very gift of your presence. The very Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. You want to dwell within us so that our minds can be set on that Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray right now in empathy for people in this room who are saying, I'm just not sure, but I want the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, would you give that to us? Would you pour an abundance of your Spirit into each heart here that is longing for it? And by faith, Lord, they're crying out to you now because they know that this is the gift you want to give to us. So would you dispense your Spirit in abundant measure and pour yourself into each longing heart here? And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, another mistake we make in relation to the Holy Spirit is we think it's a one-and-done thing. Oh, I got that way back when. And Paul actually teaches us something different in Ephesians 5.18. He says, Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And the language there for the verb is more of a present, kind of ongoing thing. So Paul is saying, keep on being filled with the Spirit. Always be filled with the Spirit. It starts at that moment you first ask by faith and receive that Paul talked about it as a seal in Ephesians 1, 13-14 that guarantees our inheritance. But it continues almost as Jesus said, the Spirit is like the living water. So it's this continual dynamic flow of the life and the love and the Spirit of God that flows to our souls as long as we just receive that by faith. And the best way to receive by faith is to continue to ask. Keep filling me, Lord Jesus, with your Spirit. I want to make this point from verse 10. I don't want you to fear these sensational emotional abuses done in the name of the Holy Spirit. Because I really think over the years of ministry that that's what makes some people hesitant. Don't fear that. Don't fear life in the Spirit. Just ask in faith and desire. And trust the Holy Spirit to do what He wants to do in you. Don't fear that you're going to become fanatical or weird or irrational. Right? Just because you see some of these things in the name of the Spirit doesn't mean that's going to happen to you. This is a good gift. One of the best gifts God can give us. Receive the Spirit in His fullness. And then when you do, verse 11, expect progress in godliness as the Holy Spirit transforms our whole being from the inside out. Look again at verse 11. Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, 
and you ask and you've received, well, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. In other words, he is giving life to your flesh, new life to your bodies. That won't be completed until we go to be with Jesus, but there should be progress now. Expect progress in godliness in how you live. You should be growing more and more in the likeness of Christ as the Holy Spirit does his work in you. Expect a holistic transformation. All right. Now, we're finally ready to talk about this word compelled. Remember that? To be compelled is to be driven by that irresistible internal urge to a particular course of action. And I think this is what Paul is teaching us in verses 12 through 14, to live compelled by the Holy Spirit. So let me read you that, verse 12 through 14. Paul says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, and that's kind of the word that communicates this compulsion, an obligation. But it's not to the flesh. Jesus took care of that. He condemned sin in the flesh. That's over and done. We don't have an obligation to live according to the desires of the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's where we want to go here. Let's be compelled by the Spirit. And so Paul uses this phrase, this word obligation is translated in the NIV. We have an obligation to Jesus. That means to be bound by, uh, uh, bound by duty, to be indebted. It's the same as that word to be compelled. It's driven by an irresistible urge to be bound or hemmed in. It means I can't not do this. <laughs> in other words, when you're compelled internally, when you're driven like this, there's no opt out. There's no, well, I'm not going to do that because. No, you will do this if you're compelled. You're being driven. You'll just do it. Paul used this word in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, when he was on his way to Jerusalem towards the end of at least the recording of his life in the book of Acts. And he knew that danger and imprisonment awaited him there. And the Ephesian elders knew that and a bunch of other people did too. And they pleaded with him. They said, Paul, don't go. Bad things are going to happen to you there. And Paul said, I know that. I know that persecutions await me in every city, but I'm bound by the Spirit to go. I don't have an opt-out. I'm going. Got to go. I'm compelled. I'm driven to Jerusalem by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a... This compulsion is not a negative thing. It's not something that, oh boy, I got to do that because the Holy Spirit's telling me to. So, you know, this. Not like if you invite me over for dinner Tuesday night, I'm going to say, no, I can't come. This crazy Holy Spirit is compelling me to do some chores for my wife that night. I, I'm sorry. It's not a resentful thing. We want to be compelled by the Spirit. We want to live in the new way of the Spirit. So it's not, a, oh, i got to do this, poor me. No, it's like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you're driving me forward into your will by an irresistible urge of your spirit that is consistent always with your word. You're pressing me, driving me forward. We love that. We want that. We desire. Paul used a similar word in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Look at this. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Paul's saying the same thing here. He's saying Christ's love compels us towards you. 
And in the context we're going to see later, this whole chapter is the context of reconciliation. So Paul is saying Christ is compelling us towards you. And Paul had some rough days with the Corinthians church. And he's saying Christ's love compels me to reconciliation with you. So again, it's bound. Christ's love is in me. The word here carries the idea of almost being cemented or bound together, compressed together. So what Paul is really saying here is just, I'm compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. His love is in me. It's a part of me. Therefore, it's going to be extended to you to pursue reconciliation. It's this idea of being compelled. This is what it means, as Paul says in verse 14, I think, to be led by the Spirit of Jesus. To be led by the Spirit simply means to be compelled by the Spirit. So we follow His Word, His will, His compulsions. It's the Spirit of Jesus in us. And I use Spirit of Jesus and Holy Spirit synonymously because that's all the Holy Spirit is. is the second person of the Trinity in spirit form, third person of the Trinity. Sometimes we fracture the Trinity a little much one God. And so it's the Spirit of Jesus that drives me forward to accomplish the will of God. I want that. You want that, believer in Christ. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. Now, let me spend the rest of the time on application here. What does this look like and how is it different than being compelled by the flesh? I showed you our little brain graphic before. Let's, let's run through three common temptations with our picture here. And most would agree that the most common three temptations we face in the world comes from money, sex, power. And if you uh, hear someone that's famous, uh, you read about them on whatever news you you read, or maybe if you still watch the nightly news, if that person's name is the lead story and it's it's usually going to be negative, it's the lead story, chances are they got in trouble with money, sex, or power. It's probably one of those three. So what's the mind of the flesh when it comes to money? The mind of the flesh when it comes to money is more. Get more. Invest, save, get as much as you can. Get more. For some people, without scruples, it's get more, no matter even if you have to oppress others or cheat, embezzle, or fraudulently get it any way you can. Get more. That's the mind of the flesh when it comes to money and stuff. The mind of the Spirit is give more. It's generosity. It's generosity. Paul said in Genesis, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, you will be enriched in every way. Why? Not so you can have a higher standard of living, but the second part of that verse is so you can be generous on every occasion. That's the mind of the Spirit. Why? Because that's the heart of God. God isn't sitting there today wringing his hands and saying, oh, I wish Crossroads would, those people would give 15% instead of 10% of their income because I have a tight month. That's ridiculous. God's got, God, the scripture says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He's got everything. He doesn't need more money. His heart, his spirit is to give. We call that grace. It's generosity. So Jesus promised that he would provide for us all that's needed. The spirit of the flesh is to get more. The spirit or the mind of the flesh is to get more. The mind of the spirit is to give more. Get versus generous giving. Let's talk about sex. Pretty much the same thing. What's the mind of the flesh on sex? 
Get as much as you can, anytime, anyplace, anywhere, from anybody. It pretty well summarizes our culture's standard of sexual relationships. Get as much as you can, anytime, anyplace, anywhere, from anybody. The mind of the Spirit says, no, this, this incredible gift from God was created for one man, one woman in the context of marriage. And it's about giving, not getting. The mind of the Spirit says give in marriage as an incredible expression, an incredible gift to your spouse, demonstrating your complete commitment to oneness to that person for the rest of your life. See the difference? One is get, 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 get. Anytime, anywhere, from anybody. The others give to one person in the context of committed marriage. Money, sex, power. What about power? The way people find power in our world is to elevate themselves. And so everybody wants to climb the ladder, whether it's in their company, whether it's in politics, whether it's in government, whether it's in the family. Everybody wants more power. Well, that comes by elevating self. And it's epidemic in our culture. I think social media has just fed this because we just elevate ourselves so much in social media. It's it's amazing how much we self-promote today (laughs) that... uh, New levels of self-promotion. The mind of the Spirit is to empower others. Jesus came to empower others. I'm always amazed that Jesus only ministered for three years. He was only on the planet for like 33 years. Only three years of that was ministry. I'm like, what's up with that? How come I got to do it for 40? What's up with that? That's because Jesus didn't come to make a big name for himself. He's already Lord of the universe. He came to serve. Came to die, came to suffer. Why? To empower you and me so that we could be members of his kingdom, so that we could be children of the king, so that we could carry forth the mission. He didn't come to make a name for himself, to exalt himself over others. He came to serve. That's what he said, the greatest among you is servant of all. Now let me give you another illustration I think is really pertinent for our immediate culture especially in the last year and a half here with with COVID and the intensity of politics and racial concerns that we've seen in our particular nation, in our country, um, that has been hurtful. People have been hurt by others' opinions, by others' views, and the way others have chosen to express those. And so what's the mind of the Spirit when I've been hurt or offended? Let's contrast the the mind of the flesh versus the mind of the spirit when I've been wounded by others. And you know, the tragedy of this is the people who wound us the deepest are the people we care most about, isn't it? Spouse, family, brothers and sisters in the church, people we work with. I think the mind of the flesh when it comes to Interpersonal hurt and woundedness is self-protection. I think we see self-protection in a variety of ways. Self-protection typically begins when a person withdraws or isolates themselves. And that's because I've been hurt. Nobody likes being hurt. So I'm going to put up this wall of self-protection to keep from being hurt again. So I'm going to withdraw from you. I'm going to isolate from you. In marriage, we call this the silent treatment. (laughs) happens all the time 
But if you don't resolve the silent treatment through reconciliation and you just have it there and the next week there's another situation and another and another and another after about 40 years when you come into my office for marital counseling, I'm going to say, you've got a wall the size of the Great Wall of China between y'all. Because you've never reconciled little things as you've gone along here, 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 and it's just gotten thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. You can't do marriage well and hide behind the veil of self-protection. Other forms of self-protection um, include anger and resentment. And so sometimes, I'm not saying we intentionally become angry just to protect ourselves, but that's, that's a defense mechanism. We get angry because you ain't going to hurt me again. Maybe I blame you. If I don't find resolution, maybe I, I live in bitterness and then I just generally vent or post I'm just kind of generally a negative person because I'm just, just living bitterness and resentment. All of that comes from this idea of self-protection. What's the mind of the Spirit? The mind of the Spirit is so different. Like everything else, it's like opposite. It's reconciliation. God is a God of reconciliation. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.18. I used verse 14 a few minutes ago that we're compelled by love. And the context is this. Verse 18 says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. This is God's heart. Because of our sinfulness and His righteousness, we were separated from God. More than that, we were enemies of God because of our sin. Paul even used the word hostility in Romans 8 here. But God wasn't content with that, so He initiated reconciliation with us in the person of Jesus Christ. He took on human flesh. He came to the place where we live. He crawled in our bodies. And he did everything that needed to be, due to, to be done to destroy sin, to free us from its condemnation, that we might be people that share his heart, reconcilers. And so when you know that you're not condemned and you know that sin has been defeated and you know that Jesus is giving you all of these things, you can be generous and you can initiate reconciliation because God has a heart of reconciliation. Now let me give you a couple other instructive texts that are very poignant from Jesus and extremely practical. And I don't think we apply these enough. First comes from Matthew 18. We're going to look at verse 15. And this is, in, this is a part of a process. This is the first step of a process. And uh, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, if your brother or sister, so that's somebody in Christ, if a brother or sister in Christ sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So this is not just any sin. This is a sin that has been an offense to you. Most translations actually use the word offended. If your brother or sister offends you, go to them. Initiate reconciliation. It's on us to initiate that. Rome, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. Again, the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, in other words, you're coming to worship, and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, the language means that your brother or sister in Christ is holding something. The inference is something that you have offended them, and that's still kind of stuck in their heart. 
Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, them coming off your gift. What, is, what are these two passages teaching us? They're teaching us that if somebody offends you, it's on you to initiate reconciliation. It's also teaching us if we've offended somebody else and they're holding something against us, it's still on us to initiate reconciliation. See how much God values reconciliation? We need to be people who are driven by and promote a spirit of reconciliation in all our relationships in our marriages, in our families, especially when our siblings are obnoxious and maybe have been for decades. (laughs) You guys aren't supposed to be shaking your head in agreement to that. We're to be people of reconciliation at work, in community, in the church, because that's God's heart. That's the mind of the Spirit. No matter how the tension got there, no matter how the conflict got there, we should promote reconciliation. The Holy Spirit is driving us to that, is compelling us to that. And I know that's kind of scary and hard to do, and that's why we've given you some language this morning on your bulletin insert. If you take that out, we actually gave you some specific language. We're so serious about this church, and I just don't think we do this anywhere close to enough. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not, if you see somebody here this morning and you really hate their shoes, don't call him this afternoon and says, Pastor Matt said that you offended me by your shoes. Oh, come on. That's not what we're talking about, all right? We're not talking about people who have different preferences. or Just let that stuff go. But if you've been offended and it's in your heart and it's stuck there, if you just let it sit there until it grows and grows and grows, more and more walls are being built up between you and that other person. That's why Jesus says, initiate reconciliation. So here's some specific, easy language you can use. You can just say to that person, you know, when you posted that thing or said that or did that or didn't do that, I was a bit wounded and offended. And I just need to let you know that. And by the way, when Jesus said in this verse 15, go to them, I don't think he meant private message them or certainly publicly message them. I think he's talking about an actual face-to-face conversation. Isn't that amazing? So seek your brother or sister out and just use this language. I just needed to let you know that. And if that other person has a mindset on the spirit, they'll probably respond something like this. You know, wow, thanks for sharing that with me. That took a lot of courage. I'm sorry I was insensitive, and it was good you pointed that out to me. I'll prayerfully pour this out to Jesus and process it with him. Language for Matthew 5. If you become aware that, somebody, that you may have offended somebody else, here's some language you can use. You know, it's come to my attention that I may have offended you in regards to that thing I posted or said or did or didn't do. If so, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I was insensitive to you. Please help me understand your offense and how I was insensitive to you and maybe how I can respond better in the future. These don't have to be long conversations and they don't have to end in agreement. You can still have your differing opinions. You can think one thing, the other person can think another. The heart of God is not that we would all say the same thing all the time, that we're robotic. The heart of God is that we just journey together as people in the same body of Jesus, reconciled and not self-protecting from each other. So just use this language. Just use this. Do it in love. Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. So until you can 
speak this kind of language to your brother and sister from a heart of love and from a center of peace and joy. If you can't do that, you're probably not ready to apply it yet. So you've got to be prayed up a little bit first. And then when you are, you just got to do it. And then there's another step in Matthew 18. If, if your brother or sister doesn't respond well, Jesus says, then call one of the elders of the church. And I had a conversation with somebody after last service that said, it's that second step that's troubling to me. <laughs> it always seems to get such a big deal then. And I said, you know, you can just say to that person who maybe didn't respond well to the first conversation, you know, I still feel this tension. I feel like we have unresolved conflict. And I just don't think, I just want to be reconciled with you. And I think that's God's desire for us. Would you, would you be willing to just meet with one of the pastors or one of the elders who could maybe be some objective counsel for us here and help us get reconciled? We would love to do that. In obedience to how Jesus teaches us to do this. All right, I got to wrap up here. Verse 13. Let me just draw your attention back to verse 13 again. There's a promise here that's fantastic. Verse 13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And it's that phrase, put to death the misdeeds of the body. If our mind's set on the Spirit and we're living in the realm of the Spirit, it is gradually destroying, taking life away from the flesh. It's kind of the idea of Romans 12, 21 that says don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sometimes we try so hard not to do the wrong thing that we forget to do the right thing. But if we live in the realm of the Spirit and we're allowing the Spirit to control our responses to people, to pursue reconciliation and generosity and, and, and all these things that we've talked about, slowly the, the flesh just kind of shrivels up and dies we set our minds on the spirit and not give attention don't let your minds be occupied with the stuff of the flesh it will eventually shrivel up and die and go away Spirit of jesus in you that does that all right in conclusion i want to finish these verses with you let's read verse 15 through 17 the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again Funny how we've all been acquainted with fear in new ways in the last year and a half, haven't we? <laughs> it's like Paul just knew that. And he says to us, you know, the spirit you receive from Jesus and the mind set on the spirit, it doesn't make you a slave so that you have to live in fear again. Fear doesn't come from the spirit of Jesus. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. It's a way of saying you can be secure in Christ because you're a son of God, a son, a daughter of God. By him we cry, Abba, Father. You know that? That means you can use this intimate language with God, almost call him Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Living compelled by the Spirit frees us from fear. That's such an awesome thing and so relevant for our day. Let's do one more picture of our brains here. Fear, again, will drive us away from people, will drive us away from God. Fear comes from the mind set on the flesh. But the mind set on the Spirit is a mind of faith. Faith instills courage. 
to move forward, to do, to respond obediently to the compulsion of the Holy Spirit that is driving you forward in that irresistible way. Don't fight that off. (laughs) Just go with it. Let the Holy Spirit build your faith. And I think this is why the psalmist said, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. I'm not going to trust in the flesh. I'm going to trust in the Spirit. We're going to face fear. It's going to come to us. We live in a world where that's just how it is. When you face that fear, Lord Jesus, would you empower me with fresh faith? Go to the Word of God. The Scripture says faith comes through hearing the message. The message is heard through the Word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Holy Spirit, would you do that? Would you build our faith? Would you grant us greater measure of your Holy Spirit? And when you compel us, Holy Spirit, and drive us forward, may we just gain such confidence in faith that in every situation we'll we'll be people of faith who respond driven by your Spirit. And may this be for your glory in our life and our peace. Thank you. Amen.